Expedition 44 here again with Matt and Ryan. Today we are continuing our series on atonement. This is, we've done an introduction, and this is going to be the fourth part of our video series. Matt, where have we landed up till now? All right, so we did an intro, we did the sacrificial system, we did the Exodus, uh, last week we did the Day of Atonement, and today we are on Isaiah 53. All right. Now you're going to notice that these things play off of each other. There's a very strategic reason why we're doing these in the order that we're doing them. A lot of time, work, and effort has gone into them to kind of, you know, make a foundation in one that you're going to need for the next one, and they build on each other. And so today we're doing Isaiah 53. Um, it's often referred to as the suffering servant. Matt, tell me a little bit about why we're talking about this in regards to atonement. So if you read this just in English from our modern translations. Take an NIV or RSV yes, version, yeah, something yes, like that. Anything yeah. like that. It talks about the servant being crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions, his chastisement that he took upon him brings us peace. God lays his iniquities on, on him and by his wounds we are healed. Kind of sounds like a slam dunk for PSA. So I say value. this a lot. Do you need to go learn Hebrew? Do you need to go learn Greek to be able to read those? Matt and I are at the point that we've said we've given our life to this. This mm -hmm. is what we do and it's worth the endeavor to know the languages. Mm -hmm. And so when you do know the languages and you start to read in the original languages, you start to realize that there's some things that come off as a little problematic to the newer texts that we have. And when mm -hmm. I say newer texts, almost every Bible we use today is at least 10th century, more like 17th, 18th, 19th century. Yeah, manuscripts. Manuscripts. And so we're not really reading. We always like to use the term original, original. manuscripts. Scrolls would be better, you know, mm -hmm. for ancient thinking. Nobody really reads from those, really including us. But there are earlier versions. People get so excited about the Dead Sea Scrolls because those predate almost mm -hmm. all of this. Yeah. And today we're going to kind of introduce an idea of reading from what the Hebrew um, people read before the time of Christ and then also the greater the time of yep. Christ is the LXX or the Septuagint. Most of our Watchers, listeners are going to be already really tuned into what that is. Most of them might even have a copy in front of you. If you do, go get it. And yeah. so, there you go. There's, there's Matt. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Isaiah 53. It is typically used as probably the number one slam dunk. I might even go as far as saying proof texts of PSA, which is Penal Substitutionary Atonement. And yep. that's that's really why we're talking about it. We don't want to continue throwing stones at this one theory of atonement, but as you find, it's so opposite of really the other theories of atonement, and even the ones in this case that kind of seem to agree with it, like the ransom theory and things like that, it creates problems for those theories too. Mm -hmm. And so this is the black sheep of the atonement theories. This is the one that nobody really likes, particularly when you take it to Isaiah 53. Now, this is problematic because Almost every preacher behind a pulpit in American church has at some point made a reference to Isaiah 53 as being the suffering Messiah. Yeah. So there's three views on this. Um, do we want to read the text first or go over the three views? Let's, let's just introduce the three views. And I think that as you're thinking about the three views, you can read through the text and see what it says. So yep. the, the first view is going to kind of be this 
PSA view that is going to take Isaiah 53 as prophetic writing that um, there's a suffering servant. It might be a regular person, but what it really is is a prophecy about the Messiah coming. And they're mm -hmm. going to make reference after reference to that um, about how, you know, you have this transgressive idea taking the place of yeah, things bearing like that. the sins, yeah, being pierced for it, godling the rap language, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Now that view, unfortunately, is the traditional view. That's what most people think Isaiah yeah. fifty three talks about, and I mean, I even to the point of where a lot of pastors don't even realize that that's very controversial to say that mm -hmm. they just pour it out from the pulpit as if it's the gospel. And that's, again, a place where I want to give the reform circles a little bit of credit is mm -hmm. that they've done a great job of building one singular theology into what the, you know, convincing the rest of the world mm -hmm. that that's the only way to go. Mm -hmm. And as we find with so many other things, it's not only not the only way to go, but it's definitely not the best way to go. Yep. So the second one is strictly looking at it culturally and within the book of Isaiah. How are, right. how are these words used? What's going on in the right. cultural context? The um, To the immediate audience, what does it mean? So another way of seeing this is if you would have been living during the exile, during the time that this was written, and there we're not going to argue that there wasn't another suffering servant. No one, no one say that there was a, there was a historical figure that was the, his uh, suffering servant, whether you say, could it have been the author of Isaiah? Perhaps could mm -hmm. it have been Jeremiah? A lot yep. of people would say that another one is a leper in the exile. Could it yep. have just been somebody living outside the camp that was looking at it? No one's going to discount mm -hmm. that. Even yeah. the PSA side of the fence is going to say, well, there's there's another figure going mm -hmm. on here, but that figure seems to also be pointing kind of to the, to the Messiah. But in the second view, the second view is going to be just a cultural view. You're saying when this was written, you really don't have any grounds to take it to anything further than that. Yeah, so we usually refer to the servant here as a suffering servant and servant all over in Isaiah is referred specifically to Israel. Yeah. Like as a collective community. I believe it's seven times, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so when it's referred to that, it's kind of the looking on of God punishing them is from, some would say, the Gentiles' point of view right. looking at Israel. Yeah. And so yeah. as the whole whole community of God's people suffering because of their the transgression. Yeah. So Now the third way is probably where Matt and I fall the most, but we very much still agree with the second view on this mm -hmm. too, and saying that in its original context, it really should have just been read for what it's yeah, read. Israel in exile because of their transgression of idolatry. That, that's it. Kicked out of the land. Now, what we're going to notice, though, is that some things are written with kind of a... I don't want to like, call them like... Some people look at them as like secret codes or something like yeah. that. That's not what they are. Yeah. But there might have been something written in here that could be a little bit of archetypal language or mm -hmm. a shadow is a better word for this one. There, yeah. there might have been a person in the Old Testament that was going to kind of be a, a precursor or a shadow of something to come later. And in this case, there are some words in here that seem to be a little bit of Christ-like language. And where we really land here is that in the New Testament, the writers are also going to use that reference. They're going to go back to Isaiah 53, and they're going to put some Christ typology yeah. into that language. Yeah, so the thing that we got to do here is we got to see the way the New Testament authors used it. 
So the way that the New Testament looks at the Old Testament, the way that the apostles interpreted Isaiah 53, and not go beyond that because yeah. that's actually adding to Scripture. Right. <laughs> so what we're saying is if you want to be a very strict traditional interpreter, you're just going to go with the second view and say, I'm just going to leave this mm -hmm. where it's at. You know, in the, yeah. in the time it was written, they wouldn't have gotten anything more out of it. I'm not sure I want to add anything more to it. But then you get to the New Testament and you go, well, they were looking at it as a little bit of uh, Christ uh, typology. typology. Yeah. So maybe maybe there's a tiny bit of revelation going in there that mm -hmm. we can take some of that. But you got to be careful because if you take too much of it, it just doesn't make sense. You read a lot of it and you go, well, okay, is this talking about Christ? Is it talking, talking about the Israel? Old Testament? Yeah. It's a classic view of trying to do too much with the text. We mm -hmm. need to be content just to kind of leave it where yeah, it's at the on the shelf, for itself. not read too much into it. And that's our big problem with the PSA interpretation. The first one that I shared is that they're going to take the text and they're really going to build a lot of things into the text that simply aren't there. Yep. So, um, should we have them read Isaiah 53? I think that's All good. Right. Yep. So, pause right here, read Isaiah 53. Seven times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we're going to keep going with... Uh, um, first, we're going we're gonna to touch right now, um, before we dive into the text, on the... the what's the Septuagint? <laughs> the Septuagint. So, go ahead and pause the video. Read Isaiah 53. I think this yeah. is a good time. And now we're going to talk a little bit about what the Septuagint is. Yep. Yeah. So uh, first we need to note that um, what you read probably was from an English translation. And IV, ESV, something, something like that. that. Yeah. And those all use what's called the Masoretic Text. Yeah. And we talk about that this is a 10th century, 11th century yeah. manuscript. And, and if you have a yeah. parallel, pull up the Net Bible, mm -hmm. because that's going to be interesting to yeah. kind of show you a little mm -hmm. bit more yeah. of an English Septuagint version yeah, of it. Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty good. You'll, you'll read the two right next to each other, let's say the ESV next to the uh, Net Bible. And I like the NS NASB, but even the NASB, mm -hmm. that's one of my problems with it, is that it just, I don't feel reads closer to the original text. And yeah. so the Septuagint, this is really an important conversation here because when you read Isaiah 53 from the Septuagint, it's not going to sound at all like what we read in our modern Bibles today. Yeah, it's and, a very different yeah. take on it. So the interesting thing there is since uh, most of our Hebrew manuscripts are from the 10th century, Septuagint is actually way older than that. Yeah, It's the Greek translation of from from the Hebrew that would have been back around the time of the exile. So, so putting this in context, and we've made a lot of videos that have mm -hmm. talked about this, so if you've been tracking with our videos at all, you're gonna you're gonna get a lot of this. But yep. in in the Hebrew way of thinking, you're you're going to kind of have the Tanakh and that's going to include more than what we have really in, in front of us <laughs> in our Bible. And and we don't even necessarily know what that is. Like today, you can go buy a Tanakh and it's got most of these, but you gotta remember, as I alluded to earlier, these are scrolls in Old Testament. These these are what you could get your hands on, when you could get your hands on it. There are tons of interpretations mm -hmm. of different scribes out there and things like yeah. that. Um, a really good way to put this is that a lot of times when you're looking at you know the Septuagint, some some include some things, some don't include other things, and so um, the Dead Sea Scrolls kind of helped us to understand a little bit of that that we could kind of look into them and put this. But when they yeah. when they got the Dead Sea Scrolls, one thing that surprised people is that you would see the LXX 
in the same pile as things like Enoch. And that's yeah. why when you get to some of the Orthodox churches, they would actually even include Enoch in the Septuagint, yeah. which to most Septuagint readers, you're not going to find the book of Enoch in there, but... Got in mind. <laughs> it's there. And so, so some of them are there, some of them aren't. It's kind of this what's included, what's not. And we don't think this way because we're so into canon thinking. Yeah. Um, so... What you read there was, like we said, from the Masoretic text, and when you look at the New Testament, and if you go back and like look at a quotation, sometimes it's in bold in your New Testament, saying that they're quoting the Old Testament, and you go back and read where it's at in the Old Testament, sometimes they don't line up. It's because the New Testament authors weren't reading the same Bible you are. Yeah. It's most, like 95 or more percent of the New Testament quotations of the Old Testament are from the Septuagint. Yeah. This was the Bible that the apostles and them were reading. This was their Old Testament was the Septuagint. So after we go through this a little bit, you're going to be asking yourself, why aren't I reading from the Septuagint rather than reading from these new New Testament translations that we have now and things like that? And it really is a good question. Um, yeah. uh, you know, Jesus and his followers typically would have been reading from the Septuagint more than anything else. And so if it was good enough for them, if they might have, we, we never made a video on inspiration, but we're getting, we're getting there. there yeah. If they believed it and they were quoting from it over and over, it actually seems like the Bibles we're reading today could actually be less inspired than what they were reading then. Yeah. So we got three families of Old Testament manuscripts. We got the Samaritan manuscripts, which are our oldest ones, but it's only the Torah, the first yeah. five books of the Bible. Yep. So that's our oldest. Then we have the Septuagint, which is the next oldest, um, which would have been in the what, 400s. So it's going to start about four to 500 yeah. BC. It's really not going to be completed. A lot of people would say put it between the 100, 200 BC yeah. completion. But the fact of the matter is it was completed significantly before the time of Christ. And that's what the people were using. In mm -hmm. fact, there was kind of a war going on between, and you get this in the New Testament, a war going on between the common person that was probably reading the Septuagint, the Septuagint yeah. and what was being read in the priestly class the priestly class and it's the septuagint was almost like a bad word in that mm -hmm. like you wouldn't usually bring that into some place but then you get where jesus is talking to the pharisees and in places like that and he's quoting right. out of the septuagint, septuagint. yeah so is that a slap in the face or what's going on you know mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to say but if <laughs> if the septuagint was good enough for jesus and we get all these quotes of of him yeah, quoting apostles yeah things in the old testament yeah. then it seems like a good place yeah to then learn. we got the masoretic text we talked about that's 10th 11th century so yeah. um so should we care yes yes absolutely <laughs> so why should we care uh you should care because um we should actually want to use the same bible as yeah what the jesus and the apostles were using and we should care because it was also unanimously used by the early Christians. So yeah. um, Now, it's funny that we kind of talk about Augustine sometimes. Uh -huh. And you and I tend to throw rocks at Augustine. Yeah. Like, he's not really one of our favorite people no. because he did a lot to like kind of push the reformed views out Into there and the things church, like yeah. that. But what's crazy is that even, you know, I would put him on more of the PSA side of the camp, but even Augustine is going to look back at the Septuagint and, and say it's inspired. Yeah. And actually yeah. tell Jerome, I believe it's Jerome, not to translate the Vulgate yeah. into Latin. Right. Um, because he was translating it from the Hebrew uh, kind of text going around, maybe at, at similar at that time, which there's all these accusations by the early church fathers that 
the heat, the Jews at this time were changing the texts yeah. to make them not Christological. Yeah, their Old Testaments, and to actually change the character of God yep. in them um, about Him punishing Jesus. Yeah, the other thing about the Septuagint is it's really just in in its full work it's really the oldest thing we have I mm -hmm. mean it's the when we talk about original text and we always go back and say what do the original manuscripts say there's very few complete original manuscripts and what we do have is really the Septuagint I mean there mm -hmm. there's hardly anything out there other than that if you're gonna go back and say I want to read a whole work yeah and so we could read a whole bunch of these quotes from these uh, people in the early few first centuries of uh of the church uh, like we have Irenaeus we've got Justin Martyr yeah. like you said we, we have Hippolytus we have Augustine writing to Jerome we have a couple from Augustine actually yeah. on this topic Origen said the same thing like all of these guys are saying stuff about the inspiration of yeah. the Septuagint yeah and it was what they used so some might ask since we found the Dead Sea Scrolls a lot of early um scholar like scholarship before the 50s when the Dead yeah. Sea Scrolls were found would say that oh well since it didn't match up with the Hebrew the Masoretic text that we shouldn't pay attention to the the LXX the Septuagint it's like a cult Bible. yeah <laughs> but with the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls it it actually brought um the the alexx's yeah. uh i guess honor up a little bit so yeah. um it's interesting when the dead sea scrolls were found uh the perception was forced to radically change here about yeah. the septuagint yeah. um and it, actually the masoretic text only lines up 45 percent of the time with the dead sea scrolls so, in Isaiah this is 53. a hard one yeah so when you read the masoretic text what what we're saying is you read the quotes of the new testament compared to the quotes of the old testament and it's way off. And that's what we get in our Bible today. Mm -hmm. we, we read in our Bible today and these bold words like you're talking yeah. about, we go, where is that? I yeah. want to find it. And it's like, mm -hmm. it's not in your Bible. You're missing 50% yeah. of them. Yeah, and I believe that there's seven or eight references to Isaiah 53 in the New Testament. All of them except for one are quoted from the... Um, the LXX. Yeah. The only one that isn't is we'll see the one in Matthew. He's writing to a Hebrew audience, and that's probably why he yeah. he doesn't, even though he refers to the Septuagint a whole ton in there. And the reason that he doesn't is because of the wording of sicknesses rather than the wording of sin. Yeah. Is what he uses because in the Hebrew it says sickness rather than sin. So the question comes is should should you be reading out of the LXX? And it's a great question and. I don't think it should necessarily replace your Bible. I have no problem with any of the current versions. I read from the NASB more than anything else, but the, the truth of the matter is we need to really dive in and see what the best interpretation of the text is, and I'm pretty convinced that most of our common Bibles today aren't the best interpretation of the yeah. text. And so, so we're not saying to throw out your Bible here. <laughs> right. I mean, you're still going to grow in your discipleship by reading this, uh, it might be good to have a Septuagint next to you, yeah, next yeah. to it, and maybe see where they differ, or like go to a Septuagint in the New Testament when they quote it and see what's what's going on there. So we're not saying throw out your modern translations; right. they're they're bad. God God has used those, yeah. um, so we aren't saying that. But we're saying that when we approach Isaiah fifty three, especially here, if you read um, the English translation from the Masoretic versus the LXX, you're going to get some pretty drastic changes between yeah. the two of these. Yeah. Um, one puts God as actually, potentially, uh, it's a little muddier, punishing yeah. the servant uh, for 
the sins or whatever the yeah. transgression right where it rem in the LXX it removes God from the punishment yeah. in there so so we're going to be making a lot of references to what our Bibles say versus what the LXX says simply going back to a more original version of the text and mm -hmm. so we want to get back at this again these don't just they're they're not just a few years mm -hmm. away from each other. They're they're a long ways away from each other. Uh -huh. You're putting the LXX before the time of Christ, so compared years. compared to taking these modern views of the Bible that at the best date tenth century, more like seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth century. What happened in all those times? There's a lot of church problems that kind of came in, and that's mm -hmm. why you read a lot of these and you go, "Is this the Bible I should have in my hands?" And that's a great question for another video but today we just want to introduce the LXX to you because you need to understand that for the rest of where yeah, we're going because we're so. going to be interjecting it here comparing it to the Masoretic text yeah. and that so yeah so let's uh, dive in let's dive in All Isaiah, right. Isaiah 53 you've already read it we're going to go through we're, we're going to just touch on every major part themes. of it major yep. themes and we want to again we're kind of coming from the why this doesn't work under the PSA viewpoint and I'm going to also interject some things along the way with where other other views of atonement might be better thought of here and some of them work or don't work. But the first thing is we need to look at transgressions. Yep, so Isaiah 53 verse 5 in most English translations say that the servant was wounded or crushed for the transgressions and the iniquity of the people. So that's the beginning, the part A of verse 5. So we read, how do we read 4 here? We, what does it mean he was crushed we 4? interluded this in some of our introductory yep. ones mm -hmm. that this is really going to be imp important. So when you when you have this word 4, what does what does that mean? Is it means that uh, what, what are what are some what are some interpretations of that? Um, so if you take, uh, we said most people just go right to the substitutionary sense because yeah. of our reformed thinking when we read this. Um, so that would mean that the servant was put to death in the place of or instead of others to pay the penalty for their sins. Yeah. But the text really doesn't say so much about that. One could also read for, um, to mean that the servant um, suffers and dies on behalf of or for the sake of others also yeah. so yeah. Um, so it doesn't have to have this substitutional meaning no. in fact when you're reading it particularly out of the LXX or early manuscripts you wouldn't at all read a substitution no. reading into it so you could translate the Hebrew text maybe more accurately to read the servant was wounded or crushed from the iniquities um, because it could be on behalf of or for the sake of. Um, the Hebrew preposition men there could mean from or out of. Yeah. Um, and you've done a little bit more work in your concordance uh, on that. So if you, if you look at the interpretation of this word, you, you would never get behalf or or on the sake of others. You'd yeah. never get a, a substitutionary subst mm -hmm. sense. In fact, I'm going to challenge our Reformed friends out here to say, show me one other place where mm -hmm. it has that. I... I can't find any. And so throughout Daniel, you see this word used a lot. It's used more in Daniel than any other book in the Bible. And not once does it take that substitutive sense. Now that's crazy yeah, to look Hebrew at a book that, yep. that, quote, that uses that word probably 50 times and not once does it use it that way. Yep. And then you get into Ezra. Ezra is probably the next one that uses it a lot. Jeremiah, Isaiah. 
And even Isaiah itself. Uh-huh, within you, the same book. So we're going to use the same book to interpret the word, and it never means that. And yeah. so, to me, the, what the Reformed camp is doing here is kind of crazy when you get into interpretation, because they're, they're taking a word, and they're kind of making it to mean something that we don't get anywhere else in the text. Yeah. And scripturally, hermeneutically, that means we have no right to do that. Yeah, this would be the one time that would mean that in... So out, out of a hundred times this word is used this way, it never means that, but they're they're going to take this systematic doctrine and say, well, now it means that. Mm -hmm. um, and if we go to the Greek, the LXX, so the Septuagint, um, it's the word dia here, which means the same thing. It's It doesn't have a meaning of substitution ever in the Greek. Yeah. Also, it, it means for the benefit of, or because of, or on account of. It, it, when it's in the accusative case every time, it's in the accusative case here. So in the Greek, uh, maybe a better way to translate Isaiah 53.5a would say that the, sunu, the servant was wounded because of our transgressions or, or cru and crushed on account of our iniquities, yeah. not in the place of. Right. So that four there. So that our alternative reading there also lines up with Isaiah 53.8 where it uses the same word. Uh, the Hebrew preposition men and in dia in the, in the Greek um, for the people's transgressions, which um, might translate as a result of an unjust trial, he was taken away. He was stricken because of the rebellion of my people, not yeah. in the place of the rebellion of my people. Now, there's a lot of reasons why we read these things the thing they are. So, mm -hmm. men, dia, you know, we're kind yep. of going back and forth between the two Hebrew words. And Greek, yep. We, we don't even necessarily know why one manuscript might use one. It could have been a scribe thing. It could have been something else. I don't think they thought about it necessarily the way that we do. <laughs> we do you yeah. know, they just kind of wrote it down and this happens in English all the time. I mean, people say things and somebody yeah. thinks it means one thing and somebody takes it a different yeah. way. And I, I'd say actually English is way worse about that than looking at Hebrew and even the Greek part parts of it. So let's dive into like place taking now. Okay. So is this exclusive place taking? So one in place of the other inclusive. So one for the benefit of yeah. all the rest. So those are two angles and you can't really have both. Yeah. So it's one in the place of the other. So one so Jesus taking the punishment so yeah. that we avoid the punishment. Right. Or Jesus taking the punishment to free us from the punishment that we're in. That's inclusive yeah. place taking. Very different. Yeah. Yep. So the New Testament um, authors apply of Isaiah fifty three to Christ under the idea of inclusive place taking or representation whenever they use that. And we'll get into some of the New Testament stuff here in a little yeah. bit. So um when we look at that he bore the pains or, sins of or, others, or yeah, yeah, the sins of others in Isaiah 53, 4, 11, and 12, the question here is not whether the servant suffers the ill consequence of the people. It's pretty clear in the text that he suffers the consequence of the people. The question is rather, does the, does the servant suffer those consequences in the place of the people? Um, where the people are spared from those consequences. Yeah. So what plays in here is the word are. Does does are here mean that he is suffering what is due to us or in the place of us? Mm -hmm. Is he suffering with us? Those are the yeah. questions that we're asking. So we need to look at the are and the we here also in the text, which seems to be Israel. Yeah. So um, now this is really important getting to this. Uh -huh. This is this is kind of the underlying theme of it is 
the real question is who and what is Isaiah 53 talking to and referring mm-hmm. to? Yeah. And so culturally, when context? you read it, the context is <laughs> exile, complete exile. Yeah. Um, so we always say major in the majors. This You can't read Isaiah 53 and say, oh my goodness, this is just this incredible prophetic verse about Jesus and his coming because they would have never read it that way. I mean, the letter to Isaiah, or the book of Isaiah is written to the people of Israel, so the context of the original audience is Israel. So when we read the R and the we every time mm-hmm. here, think of Israel. It's talking about Israel. Not yeah. Gentiles. Right. <laughs> so much. Yep. That plays into, we'll get to Gentile stuff when we get into the New yeah. Testament, but right, right here, it's specifically Israel in exile under the oppressive powers of the Gentiles. Now later, we're gonna kind of hear this all Israel, and that's gonna mm-hmm. be taking the whole family we, into yep, account. But originally, when you're reading this, that's not the way we read it. Yeah, so the people of Israel were burdened under the weight of their own iniquity and bearing the wounds of their own transgressions, their idolatry, which sent them, basically, they were vomited out of the land, they were sent into exile in Babylon, and all of that, and so the consequence of the nation's sin was them was exile in Babylon. We see this. Now there's a lot over. of verses here. Yeah. So let's let's read them because some people need to get this. They yeah. need to track that when you're reading this, that context is largely consequence of the nation's yeah. sin. Um, it's talked about in Deuteronomy 4, 25 to 31. Um, we see that this is foretold. Um, and then also Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 68, the covenant curses um, for God. The law basically had curses. When you broke the law, this is what's going to happen. It was an ancient Suzerian treaty right. that we see. Second Kings 23, um, 26 and 27 there, and also Second Kings 24, the beginning of the chapter there, all throughout that chapter of 24. Yep. Isaiah chapter 1 talks about this. Isaiah 40, Isaiah 42. This is important because Isaiah starts with it and he finishes with it. It's, mm-hmm. it's the theme all the way through the book, but there's no question from 1 to 42 yeah. that this is what he's the referring to. The consequences of the yeah. nation's sin is exile. So we want to major on the majors, and when we read this, that's what we're going to get, is that this is understood as exile, Babylonian captivity, con- uh, consequences of the nation's sin. To take that and go further as a s- servant's death to be some penal substitution for thing all of humanity. for all of humanity it just doesn't work yeah it's not in the context so um let's say the servant's death was a penal substitution okay um so he would suffer in the place of people and dies for the penalty of your sins so we would expect in a substitutionary framework that the people for whom he suffers would not experience the consequences of their own sin so if you're One going to put this other. as penal substitution the servant actually needs to go someplace and suffer in exile. That's uh-huh. that's what and would the, have to happen. And the nation would not be in exile right. because of that. So in the place of, so the nation would not experience exile or death or whatever, and the servant on behalf of the nation would experience it for them. Yeah. But here, the servant song, they're already in exile. Okay. And so this is impossible because yeah. it's written to people that are already experiencing the consequences of their sin. So one of the reasons why one of the first films we did was Exodus was because mm-hmm. that is the precursor to this. It's yep. talking about the concept of Exodus in deliverance. In slavery. In mm-hmm. slavery. We don't get these kind of PSA tones to a lot of people. So mm-hmm. let's talk about the Septuagint in 53.5. Yeah, so let's read the that. So, but when he was, but he was wounded because of our sins and he became sick because of our lawless acts. 
the discipline of our peace was upon him. He, uh, by his bruise, we are healed. Now, this is the part that we kind of hear a lot. In mm-hmm. fact, um, I really like Andrew Womack. He's one of my favorite guys. I love Karis Bible College. I teach a lot with Karis things. I took him on their graduation trip uh, retreat and spoke this, this last year. But one of the issues with Isaiah 53 being this suffering servant is that it's going to basically go back and really overemphasize by his stripes we are healed. And you get mm-hmm. you get a, a concept or a theology called physical atonement healing right. through that. And mm-hmm. what it's saying is everybody pretty much believes that obviously there's healing through the cross, oh, yeah. but it's it's spiritual healing. And, and the atonement physical healing people would say that we're going to look back and everything in us is is already healed basically and they're using isaiah 53 to do that now that's just one thing now i wouldn't call andrew romack reformed i wouldn't say that you know he really i I wouldn't i wouldn't be teaching you know a lot of that stuff if he was and so i like the andrew womack stuff but there's there's going to be some problems with thinking about this verse that way and that one is hard for me to get through yeah um because it the Oh, the it was about exile and not about physical healing. So yeah. putting physical healing into Isaiah 53 is actually eisegesis because you're putting something into the text the yes. text doesn't say. Yep. So you can't even take that out of it because it's not even part of this. Now, in um, Jesus' ministry, Matthew 8, 16 and 17 says that the fulfillment of um, of the Isaiah 53 suffering servant is about healing. So if you read Matthew 8, 16 to 17, people were bringing um, people who are possessed by demons to Jesus and he was casting out the demons. So, and that's what they say is the healing, the spiritual healing, that the oppression is what um, that. And when we look at the uh, um, Deuteronomy 32 worldview, exile was being under the powers because you're out in the nations that weren't ruled by Yahweh. Right. Yahweh regains them eventually, but they're run by these spiritual powers. And so the casting out of demons is actually connected more to the deliverance from the powers. So it's infirmities and bearing iniquities. Mm -hmm. And so when you say infirmities and bearing iniquities, if you're going to take that as a messianic translation, Mm -hmm. this is what Jesus is doing. Um, It very much fits in Exodus and recapitulation thinking, thinking yeah, rather than Adam. PSA yep. thinking. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that's kind of the, at least for verse 5 there, how that they, the New Testament doesn't use this. Um, he was he was wounded because of our sins. And actually, the New Testament, when they quote that there in Matthew 8, it's saying that it happened in Jesus' life and not his death. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're just looking at the context of the first one and you're kind of thinking, PSA, ransom, substitutionary atonement theories. We yeah, don't see them here. None of it. None of it. Yeah, because yeah. it's not connected to the death of the servant here. It's connected to his life, the way that they use it in the New Testament. Yeah. Um, so let's look at make us whole. So the punishment of the servant affects peace. So yeah. shalom. Yep. Um, the healing for the people. That's Isaiah 50, the second half of Isaiah 53.5. And we're concentrating a lot here on verse 5 because this is where all of the evangelical Christians, reformed yeah. Christians hinge the entire passage on verse 5 pretty much Um, so penal substitution view reads that that part uh, is the servant's punishment affects peace because his death satisfied retribution or wrath or a payment for sins 
in order that the people gain peace with God. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that. But the text doesn't apply that peace is gained for the people as a result of the punishment of the servant. It doesn't right. actually say that in nope. the text. Nope. So the text um, doesn't say that the penal death of the servant affects peace because retribution has been satisfied. It actually says the opposite. So we keep using retribution as, as wordage. So in the uh -huh. Old Testament culture, we went over this in the whole Job series, that people were trying to figure out how Yahweh necessarily interacted with them. Uh -huh. And there was this old ancient way of thinking, which again, this is this is exile time period. Mm -hmm. So they're way past the Deuteronomy 32 idea, but it's obviously still in their head in the same way that it was in the head of the New Testament author. authors. Yeah, yeah. so um, actually the song here in Isaiah 53, if you look down uh, verse eight, it says the opposite, like we were saying, it's far from satisfying retribution. It actually says that death and the execution of the servant is a perversion of justice. So what we're saying is we're gonna use Isaiah 53, what we do know to interpret what seems to be mm -hmm. maybe something yeah. else. Yeah, it says the servant's death is an unjust punishment resulting from an unjust trial down in verse eight. So if we see that this is God's justice, his yeah. retributive justice, the text actually says the opposite, that it was unjust. Right. Right. <laughs> so we can't take substitution when the text itself says that it was an unjust trial in that um, and that it really shouldn't have happened. So. so let's get to the New Testament. We have this, um, we have 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, where he's speaking to socially persecuted churches in Asia Minor. Does this view fit with that? So he, um, the Peter here echoes the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, 7-9 in um, 1 Peter 2, 21-25. So Peter interprets Christ's suffering as for you, but it's as an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Yeah. And that's 1 Peter 2, 21. So like the suffering servant, Christ has done nothing to deserve death. These people in Asia Minor have done nothing to deserve persecution except for being followers of Jesus. Yeah. But it comes anyways. We know that that right. happens when yeah. you're Christians. You'll, persecution will come. But he's basically encouraging them to be faithful as Christ was faithful even in um, unjust persecution. Yeah. So when I read this thing of, of Peter, I, I don't see any PSA retributive yeah. principles going mm -hmm. on here. It's really redemptive in context. Yeah, it says that Christ suffered freeing us from our sins by showing us the way of righteousness. By his wounds you were healed, and when you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd who is the guardian of your soul. Okay. The whole thing there is about moral influence yeah, right. rather than penal substitution. Yeah. They quote Isaiah 53 within the moral influence theory, and that's yep. how Peter uses it. And yep. he doesn't use it within ransom or right. um, anything else. Yep. So, yeah. So, let's look at... Um, Moving we, on. We, yeah. <laughs> we accounted him stricken by God. Yeah. This is another one where people um, people hinge on. So, yeah. um, Isaiah 53, 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering acquainted with infirmity, and um, as one from who others hide their face. He was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he bore our infirmities and he carried our diseases, yet we accounted him struck down by God and afflicted. So this surely yet language is really important it's here. Very what does important. it mean? So there's two perspectives going on here yeah. in Isaiah 53. And so a lot of people don't realize that. We read it as just one perspective, right. 
there are two different perspectives going yeah. on um, looking at at the servant. It's the before and the after. Yeah. So there's the before and the after perspective. So we got um, the pronouns he and we, which emphasize the the opposition here yeah. of the two perspectives. So the before and the after perspective is. So it's about the vin the after is the vindication of Yahweh's servant. Um, so when they look back on the servant, they see a different perspective than what they had before when the servant was suffering. And this is one of the few places we get this in the Bible where we we see people's idea of something and God is going to correct it. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes people have the idea and God just meets them and we're trying to figure out, I always say I'm trying to figure out where God's ideals are in this, what's God's yeah. way, where does he meet man halfway, you know? Yep. And this is a great rare perspective where we see the before and the after picture together. Yeah, so the before picture is before the vindication of the servant. Um, the people held the servant of no account. They yeah. saw the servant suffering as divine affliction, that he was struck down by God. Yeah. That was their that was their view. Yeah. Uh, that's the before view, and that's actually the view that's going to be refuted. Right. <laughs> so um, after this, after the vindication, the people see the servant suffering as solidarity with the people. That's the surely yeah. that you talked about. Um, surely, and it says the servant was a man of suffering, acquainted with affirmities. It was he who bore our infirmities and our diseases. And then we get the yet in verse 4, which shifts the perspective to the after again. Um, so the, the whole thing is here, the people see the same servant before and after his vindication, and it gives opposite reasons for the servant's suffering. Yeah. So they saw that their, that was the, their rejection as reject as... They saw it as God rejecting the servant, but it's actually... It was their rejection of the servant that gets flipped on its head. So this is starting to really get detailed. Uh -huh. I'm not, I'm not yeah. sure everybody's tracking Backing. here, you know. So let's read it in the Septuagint because I think that's going to kind of give you clarity for what we're trying to say. Yeah, so I'll just read the, the whole thing here. So Isaiah 53, O Lord, who has believed our report and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We proclaim as a child before him, as a root in a thirsty land, he had no appearance or glory, and we saw him, and he had no appearance or beauty. Instead, his appearance was dishonored and coming to an end among the sons of humans, a human who is in misfortune and who knows, and who knows how to bear sickness, for his face has been turned back, he was dishonored and was not esteemed. This one carries our sins and suffers the pain for us, and we regarded him as one who is in difficulty, misfortune, and affliction. And he was wounded because of our sins, and he became weakened because of our lawless acts. The discipline of our peace was upon him. By his bruise we were healed. All have been misled like sheep. Each person was misled in his own path, and the Lord handed him over for our sins. And because he was afflicted, he did not open his mouth like a sheep being led to the slaughter and like a lamb who is voiceless before the one who shears it. He did not open his mouth. His judgment was was taken away in humiliation. Who will describe his family? For his life was taken from earth and he was led to death because of the lawless acts of my people. And I will give the, the wicked in the place of his tomb and the wealthy in the place of his death because he committed no lawlessness. And there was no deceit in his mouth. The Lord is willing to cleanse him from injury if you give him um, concerning sin. Our souls will seal a long-lived seed, for the Lord wishes to remove him from the difficulty of his soul. 
to show him the light and to form him with understanding to justify the righteous who serves many well and he himself will bear their sins because of this he will cause many to inherit and he will apportion it the spoils of the mighty because his soul was given over to death and he will rec was reckoned among the lawless and he bore the sins of many and he was handed over because of their lawlessness so matt when i read this it it's you can't read that version of the Bible and take a PSA view. You no. Just, you just wouldn't land there at all. No. And so the place where we want to land is the, the verse that says, This one carries our sins and suffers pain for us, and we regarded him as one who is in difficulty, misfortune, and affliction. Yeah, the part of God doing this is not in the Septuagint text. Right. Yeah, so Marna Hooker actually says that this is the suffering servant's suffers as a result of the sins of others yeah not in the place of others since right. he's not being punished for their sins but he so that word are there's like this are i'll call it mm -hmm. a paradigm within the psa view and when i read this song that you just wrote mm -hmm. it's actually i there's no grounds to go there it's mm -hmm. i would even call it the exact opposite of yeah that. so god's not doing the punishing of the servant that we're projecting that God is doing it onto. And that's the before picture that we're right. projecting that onto the servant. The actual thing is when they see that the servant is healed. Yeah. And then they realize, oh, well, our scapegoating was wrong. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing. And it shocks them. It's the, it's the shock factor of that, that, that causes the people to repent. So we did a whole video on sacrificial offerings. And in the video, we, kind of went through and told the difference between a guilt offering and a sin offering. And one of the reasons why we spent so much time on that, doing a whole video on it, is because later when we get to this language throughout the entire Bible, it's always making references to those things. And so mm -hmm. here we have a guilt offering. Yeah, it's the Assam. Uh, um, so it dealt with breaches of injustice in the community. Um, and it actually was more about uh, reparations we talked about than actual like sin, guilt. Um, it's about making things right between, between two people. Um, where there was a breach of covenant and uh, where they had done harm to other covenant members yeah. and then restoring the, the covenant with God. Yeah. And that was kind of the, what it came down to. So, so this is important because throughout the old Testament, there's so much metaphorical language, particularly uh -huh. in songs and poems and stuff yeah. like this, but we get this idea of a Psalm and we don't see in Isaiah 53 as this being literal. It's a, yeah. it's a metaphorical servant, uh, is going to be offered on a temple mm -hmm. altar. And we do that in our language all yeah. the time, that I want to put this at Jesus' feet. I want to give mm -hmm. this one to the altar. Am I literally laying down and sacrificing myself? It's kind of the yeah. same idea going on. And here. I would say that this actually talks more about Jesus' life as being an Assam. So he's put yeah. forth by God. It suggests the in the passage that it's the servant's ministry is a way of God dealing with the people's guilt by repairing the breach. Yeah. Um, so the life of Jesus reflects the patterns of the faithful prophet who intercedes on behalf of the community and, and God yep. stepping into that, that breach um, 
which is an act of reparative and restorative justice rather than retributive justice. This is communal covenant thinking yeah. at its best. And so yeah. you have to put it at communal covenant. And if you're thinking that way, and you should be, if you yeah. read it, the Old Testament at all, you'd yeah. be thinking that way. It doesn't It doesn't work to put it somewhere else in the puzzle. Yeah, so the guilt offering in itself wasn't punitive or retributive, but it was restorative in nature, and it had nothing to do with punishment. Yeah. It, it was restoring what was broken. And this isn't the only part of Isaiah 53 that you take that on. When you get to verse 10, you're also going to have that same kind of communal covenant thinking. Yeah, um, the Lord was willing to cleanse him from his injury. If you make an offering, our soul will see long-lived offspring, and the Lord will be willing to remove him from the difficulty of his soul. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, when we look at the God and the human servant, in, in this whole passage, the Hebrew emphasizes duality um we see that god um lays the servant the burden of others sin but the servant willingly takes it on and this, this is kind of poem language yeah so you're using the same AD, verb AD. and you're going to do you're going to do god, god servant, servant god yeah. servant god yeah. servant so there's three instances of this um in in the text if you look at it closely and every time god and the servant are completely aligned they're not against each other ever um, in this. So it, it really says that God chooses to intervene in the people's rebellion to and, and to spare the servant's life, but he lets the consequences of the rebel's iniquity strike the servant. Now, this is one that the PSA crowd kind of gets their wrath ideas uh -huh. from. They kind of view this as the, this blazing wrath of God. Do, mm -hmm. do we see that in the text? No. The, the servant, according to God's will, interposes himself between the rebels and their own consequences yeah so it's like when we talked about god being hand, handing over to what they want is is their wrath god hands the people over to exile the servant gets in the middle of right. those sins to spare this this the nation from their destruction we did a video on wrath and i thought about putting it in the playlist for atonement because it's really like if you don't get that understanding of god's wrath of handing mm -hmm. over in the old testament it's easy to get a psa view especially reading from a modern translation on these things and that's why people land there but yep. it's unfortunately a problematic view yeah so not only does the suffering and the death of the servant involve the will of both and the action of both god and the servant it's um the will of both of them are in perfect accord. Right. It's not one against the other. So this has a lot of Trinitarian aspects yeah. to it, especially when we take it to the New Testament, if we interpret the cross through this stuff. So yeah, the servant is no powerless pawn, again, of right. divine power. It's He's a willing participant in God's purposes. He's an agent of justice. Um, yeah. So yeah. So there's this duality or two-sidedness mm -hmm. to it that you kind of go there and you're going to see suffering servant Jesus, suffering mm -hmm. servant Jesus. And we see that throughout the life and the death of Jesus. And that's why this is part of our atonement film. Yeah. So when we look kind of here at Isaiah 53, let, let's see how to, um, one of the, our third view there was look at how the New Testament yeah. authors use it. So maybe let's just peek at them a little bit quickly before we wrap up some so, things. So at this point, if you're reading this, you're still reading in the ancient exile reading, and it's all 
it's all exile reading. It's all sacrifice. Mm-hmm. It's all communal type of covenant language and things like that. You wouldn't necessarily take it anywhere else. And would I read that? Would I simply be a Jew living in exile, thinking this is about a coming Messiah? Probably not. And that's why it's a little problematic to take it that way, especially in a penal substitutionary sense. It's because all of this is representation and not substitution. But then you have the New Testament authors, and the New Testament authors are going to go back and read Isaiah 53, and they're going to make some direct uh, correlations between the suffering servant and Jesus. Yeah, so Isaiah 53 verse 1 is quoted in John 12:38 and in Romans 10:16, and it's basically, who has believed our report? Which yeah. is the opening line of the Isaiah 53. And so... In both these verses, there's no context of penal substitution. It's actually about correcting the point of view of yeah. the way that people look at the Messiah. Yeah. And then you get into Isaiah 53, 4, and it says, carried our diseases. That's a Matthew 8 reference that we could take away. Yeah, and so we talked about that already. The context there um, was about the fulfillment of prophecy in the casting out of demons. Uh, and it was really about Jesus' life rather than his death. Yeah. It was about his ministry there. And then by his stripes you were healed. That's uh, 1 Peter 2.24, reference to Isaiah 53.5. Yeah, applying to the servant um, to Jesus and him being scapegoated, which brought healing. And again, you know, we people want to take this to physical healing, but that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really don't have the... Hermeneutically, we don't have the means to do that. Yeah, you can't read that into the text. Yeah. So, so then I, I, Isaiah 53, 7, a lamb led to slaughter, and that's an Acts 8.32 reference. Yeah, it's just a description of Jesus' death. Uh, it is part of basically saying that the servant was deprived of justice. Uh, right after this, Peter begins, he begins here and then preaches the good news of Jesus being king. And it's really, it's it's interesting that, you know, we always kind of want to see, you know, scapegoat thinking as as being the lamb that was dead, but that wasn't always the case. We don't really know what happened to the scapegoat. Did they fall off the cliff? Did they get pushed off the cliff? Did they live in some guy's, you know, yard, some Gentile's yard for the rest of their life? Hard to say. So it's not specific in the Old Testament. And sometimes we want to carry over specificness into the New Testament that didn't exist in the Old, and again, hermeneutically, you can't really do that. Yeah, so Isaiah 53.9 says he committed no sin. Peter uses that in 1 Peter 2.22, and Peter uses this just to communicate Jesus' example for our lives, so moral influence theory. Um, Then the last ones that we have here in the, is he was numbered among the transgressors, which is Isaiah 53.12. It's used in Mark 15.28, and in Luke twenty two thirty seven, and it was used during Jesus' crucifixion in the context of him making intercession for the other transgressors. Father, forgive them. So what the Reformed circles and really PSA camp, I, I don't want to just put that on Reformed because yeah. it's all over the place, but yep. what they're trying to get you to say is that the New Testament readers thought of this as PSA, propitiation, wrath, payment, debt language, all that going in. Do we see any of that? No. We we see the servant coming into the exile of God's people in order to exhaust the covenant curses and free them. It's not in the place of its representation. Now there is scapegoating language going mm-hmm. on here. So how do you how do you kind of take the scapegoat and look at it? So we talked about scapegoating a little bit in our intro episode. Um, So Isaiah 53 is kind of connected to the scapegoat in in the way that society 
through um, what um, Rene Girard calls mimetic desire, so yeah. mimicking um, other people's desires, will always, in order to find peace, pin their rage and place the sin, yeah. the sins of the community on somebody in order to kill them, in order to bring peace yeah. to the group. But it only is temporary. It lasts about this long. Lasts yeah. about that long. Yeah. It feels good in the moment. They they got rid of whatever issue is in the community, pinning it on one person and getting rid of them. Um, but then it eventually always comes back. So we do get this in the New Testament. This is yeah. if you read John eleven forty nine through fifty three, you can read that if you want to, and mm -hmm. it does kind of show the scapegoating and fits the context of the servant at the same time. Yeah, so um, in that, it's talking about uh, Caiaphas basically saying that um, Jesus, talking about Jesus being a scapegoat, that one must die for the nation. Yeah. <laughs> and that, so it in the context, it isn't about satisfying God's wrath. It's more about kind of satisfying the wrath of the people. Yeah. So you're looking at wrath, and this is oftentimes, this is, we kind of got into this in our wrath videos, mm -hmm. that oftentimes we see, you know, we read about wrath and we want to pin that on God, but it actually wasn't God, it was the people. Yeah, so when we look at the book of Acts, and we're going to get more into this next week when we look at the Gospels and Acts, but who killed Jesus according to the Acts? Right. Um, Acts 2, 23, 24, this man you put to death by nailing him to the cross. Acts 3, 15, you killed the author of life. Yeah. It seems like he's a little bitter about over. this. Yeah. <laughs> Acts, who killed him? Acts yeah. 4, you crucified him, but God raised him. Acts uh -huh. 5, you killed him by hanging him on the cross. Acts so Matt's seven. point is yeah. that whenever you read this, particularly in Acts, it's always a the human agency of political Kill. purposes that are putting Jesus to death. Yeah, and we see it in the Gospels as well. So, yeah, um, yeah when we get to Luke 23, um, the same thing. They kept urgently demanding, this is the crowds, that he should be crucified. So Pilate gave his verdict and demand that it should be granted and it satisfies he, the crowd it satisfies you know. the crowd yeah yeah and that that was the whole thing and we're going to look more into this this next next week but what do we see the heart of god is i think we get this from second corinthians five nineteen, where it says that god was reconciling the world to himself in christ not counting people's sins against them and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation yeah so the violent death of jesus we see exposes the lie of scapegoating yeah. that that violence, and basically violence for what it is, I mean, those who see the lie uh, can live lives of freedom from it. Yeah. You know, and that's the big thing. When we look at the two perspectives, they thought it was God punishing Jesus, which was the first perspective in Isaiah 53. The after perspective is when he's vindicated. They saw that actually their violence and their scapegoating yep. never solves the problems, and right. it leads to repentance then. And that's where we see repentance in the cross is us realizing that our our violence against people and the way that we treat that one way that we treat god it, it uh, in that whole situation like though we deserve to be in exile he freed us and we killed him anyways yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. it's really interesting when you start getting into this and reading the new testament of uh, you mm -hmm. know we want to say we put jesus on the cross you hear yeah. that all the time yeah. that you know pastors will preach to that that what well, you know jesus on the cross because of your and my sins today and mm -hmm. ever since i was five there was a disconnect there yeah you know i've kind of gone like are, are you sure because my bible kind of says it was them that did that yeah you know yeah yeah so yep takeaways from isaiah 53 what did we get out of here so 
For our transgressions is on account of or because of and not in the place of. Yep. So the language talks about that. Major it's, hermeneutic flaw to take it yep, that way. Yeah, so representation, not substitution. Yep. So it's for our benefit, not in our place. Yep. Um, the next is the context of exile. Yeah, you have to look at this within exile, sacrifice, um, covenant language. If, if mm -hmm. you don't look at it that way, you're really missing a huge part. Yeah, of it. so the servant enters into their exile um, in order to heal them. This is what bearing their sins yeah. is. Um, I love this quote from Gregory of Nyssa. He was a early church father. He says, the unassumed is unhealed. Okay, yep. And so Septuagint also seems to notice um, this and has God removed from the actions against the servant. Yeah, interesting. So Masoretic text makes it a little bit muddier. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, the next is there's no mention of propitiation or wrath. I know we keep saying this over and over, but it's really important to identify that you have this one passage that really is a huge pre PSA mm -hmm. block for what they believe. And when you go through it step by step, we're not we're not doing any crazy gymnastics. Mm -hmm. We're just reading it, particularly in the oldest manuscripts that we have. And Boy, I, I just don't see that anywhere in it. Yeah, and we need to be aware of the before and after perspectives in this chapter is, yeah. is the next thing. The before perspective was deemed incorrect based on the grammar and the context. And when people look back at the servant, they see that their point of view was incorrect. Yeah. Uh, and God wasn't actually punishing the servant. That was just their point of view. It wasn't the reality. Yeah. And the thing is, is that the Reformed and Evangelical view takes the before view as the actual reading of the text There's and not no the separation after view. between yeah yeah they read it all as one view with right. not distinguishing the the us and, and them basically yeah. the before and after points of view that are that are grammatically in the text and if if you do that you miss the whole reparation of relationships that mm -hmm. that there's no you, and that's kind of where this penal sacrifice yeah. thing comes yeah, from yeah the the guilt offering was about repairing relationships yeah. and that was they were in exile. Right. God want God still wanted them as his children. Right. He wanted them back in the land. He wanted Now to one use thing them. we didn't talk about too much, but you you did a message on this I think last Easter and you really hit on this is that a lot of people are reading this out of Isaiah 53 as this rupture in the Trinity on the cross that they're going to mm -hmm. see like the Trinity break apart and when you read it with the PSA understanding, that's kind of what you get. Yeah. It, the Trinity becomes very problematic. Yeah, it's the logical conclusion when you got God pitted against the Son. Yeah. Um, but we see here is that God and the servant, if you take the servant as Jesus, are working in tandem. Yeah. It's not God one against the other. Yes. Yeah. God wants to set them free from exile. The servant comes into their exile in order to heal them, and they're working together. He he bears the iniquity of their exile in order to free them. We always talk about this backward kingdom thinking, this mm -hmm. backward kingdom principle, and if you were Jesus' disciples, you thought all was lost at the cross. I mean, you just thought that the Messiah came and that, mm -hmm. you know, the political powers that be, you know, yeah. just said, we're done with this, but then what happens through the grave and the resurrection uh -huh. and the ascension is going to be totally counterintuitive to what you might even say the evil principalities yeah. thought was uh -huh. going. They they were waving totally their hands upside saying, down. We got this, and you know, and in some things in pop culture, I remember a Carmen song that kind of talked yeah. about that surprising alarm riding up, mm -hmm. and you, you get that a little bit. But the the PSA camp of it 
is is going to have a hard time with that one too. Yeah. So it, the kind of the last thing here is let's look at the way the New Testament authors applied Isaiah 53, and we see that it's never in the context of substitution or penal substitution when they're using Isaiah 53. So we have moral influence theory, which mm-hmm. you and I kind of teeter on. We, yeah. we find some things good within that oh, yeah. theory. It's not an all-encompassing theory, though. It's, it's hard to take it as a primary view. You but put it as one club in your golf bag. Exactly. So you kind of take that and you kind of end up with a little bit of Christus Victor as well. Yeah, so it, we see the, the, the driving out of demons stuff, the yeah. way that it's used in the New Testament of Jesus' life can definitely talk to Christus Victor. We see a hint of the Exodus motif there. Yeah. Um, recapitulations, the big thing. Um, Jesus assuming what came in the likeness of sinful flesh, as it says in scripture, yeah. in order to heal us. So him being the new Adam. Yeah. Um, and we see the scapegoat theory as well. So the New Testament writers are going to kind of take this suffering servant that you know happened at the time of the exile. We don't really know who that mm-hmm. suffering servant is. And they're going to kind of take some Jesus innuendos or shadowing from that, but they're definitely not going to take the whole thing and say that this was, you know, yeah. a direct match. Yeah, well, we gotta see what does the, what do the New Testament authors pull from that and apply to Jesus and make that the primary things that we concentrate on with the overlap between the two, um, not reading into it other things. So we always talk about, um, you know, Jesus kind of giving new light to some of the Old Testament passages, mm-hmm. to giving clarity to yeah. him. Perhaps things that were being misinterpreted yeah. of the Old Testament, he's going to step in and he's going to make them right, mm-hmm. kind of give us the better interpretation yeah. of it. So um, in this way of thinking with with all of it, you can take this suffering servant thing, and it's interesting that Jesus himself actually doesn't make any correlations. It's the later writers that are going to make correlations, but yeah. that yeah. shouldn't discount it for any reason. There's still going to be, you know, some direct correlations between the life of Jesus mm-hmm. and the suffering servant. You just, I'm going to end where we finished. You just got to be careful with this text. You, mm-hmm. you got to, like anything, you got to just go back and really study it, read the cultural, read it in the language that it was written in to get the best understanding of it. Because what we have here, I've been nice so far. I'm going to, I'm, I'm just going to say the, I'm going to put it out the way I really think of it. When I see the way PSA uses Isaiah 53, it seems like a hermeneutic and biblical atrocity to mm-hmm. me. Like this is one, this is one of the main reasons why I can't stand PSA theory is because they take something that has no PSA built into it and they kind of do all these gymnastics with it and make, make, whole doctrine systematically based on it and it just seems so wrong in the lens of the bible and interpretation yeah so what we've seen here is our our interpretation of isaiah 53 which comes from the text yeah um it offers an alternative reading to penal substitution it shows how god's justice doing and peacemaking work in jesus can be seen as the prophetic fulfillment of the vision of the lord's servant well put Hope this blessed you, and we have several more great series for you coming. The Gospel next week. Gospel next week. May God bless you and keep you.